blood-bought people. And we seek that to see thy face through the preaching of thy word. Oh, Lord, I pray that you would give me boldness to proclaim thy gospel, the gospel of thy free and sovereign grace, which, which is only in you, Lord Jesus. pray that you would build up your people, that we would be built up, and that the Holy Spirit would teach us and guide us as we study the scriptures, and uh, that our hearts again would be drawn to thee. In Jesus' name, amen. 1 Peter chapter 4, we'll start chapter 4 today. Last time we met for our Sunday school lesson, we finished chapter 3. And today we'll be looking at chapter 4. And the name of the message is Armed and Standing in Christ. Armed and Standing in Christ. Now tonight, today's message, this one here in Sunday school, and tonight's message, uh, an evening, have a theme of being soldiers in Christ, which is what we are as believers. We're soldiers in Christ. And, and here we see in our text, it says, For as much then as Christ has suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourself likewise with the same mind, for he that hath suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lusts of man, but to the will of God. For the time past of our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lasciviousness, lust, excess of wine, reviling, banquetings, and abominable iniquities, wherein they think it strange that ye run not with them to the same excess of riots, speaking evil of you, who shall give account to him that is ready to judge the quick and the dead. For this cause was the gospel preached also to them that are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the spirit. But, in, but the end of all things is at hand. Be ye therefore sober, and watch unto prayer. And above all things have fervent charity, which is love, among yourselves. For charity or love shall cover the multitude of sins. Use hospitality one, hospitality one to another without grudging. As every man hath received the gift, even so, minister the same one to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. If any man minister, let him do it as of the ability which God giveth, and that God in all things may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom be praise and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So in our past studies, we looked at how in verse 18 of chapter 3, the Lord Jesus Christ, the just one, died in the place of his people, the unjust sinners, God's elect. And he did this to bring us to God, to bring us to God. Look back one chapter, it says in verse 18, For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. Now again, remember Paul's writing to suffering saints. Um, they're going through various trials and tribulations and it's a reality that they are suffering. But he brings before them again, he who suffered more than we will ever suffer. He who, who suffered more than any other human being ever suffered. And he brings forth that the just one, the sinless one, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who is absolutely sinless in thought, word, deed, he's perfect. He's the perfect, spotless Lamb of God. And think upon this. His mission was one of suffering. He, he's, his mission was one of innocent suffering. 
innocent suffering because he's the just one again, the holy one, the righteous one, dying for the unjust, which is sinners. So his mission, as the theologians say, was one of vicarious suffering. Vicarious suffering. He suffered on the account of the unrighteous sinners, his elect. And his mission was one unconquered by suffering, being put to death in the flesh, he was quickened in the spirit. And so last time we looked at this wonderful book, we were finishing up chapter 3, again where we looked at how the Lord Jesus Christ has gone into heaven. He's gone into heaven, where the throne of our great God and our great King is. Look at verse 22 of chapter 3. Our covenant head, the Lord Jesus Christ, is now in the bosom of the Father. He's at the fountainhead of love and grace. And he's there on our behalf, beloved. He's there on our behalf. He knows what we go through. He knows what we suffer. He knows. And he's there interceding for us. Look, it says this. Who has gone into heaven and is on the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto him. Everything, everything. Do you know that there's not, a, there's not one maverick molecule? Not one maverick molecule, beloved, in this whole universe. Not one. It's all subject and under the power of our great God. So when you think about that, when you think of that dominion, that's an absolute dominion. And it says here, who has gone into heaven and is on the right hand of God, Angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto him. Everything. And notice in the latter part of verse 22, we see the, the fact that his, his, his dominion is an absolute dominion. His rule is an absolute rule. See, it says angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto him. Now, see the words, note the words there, being made subject unto. In the Greek, that's one word. That's one word in the Greek. And it means this, to arrange under, to subordinate, to subordinate, to subject, to put in subjection. Everything is in subjection to our Lord. Everything. To subject oneself to obey, to submit to one's control. Our Savior, our Redeemer, has absolute control. Now, now think of how comforting that would be. And, and, and those he's writing to would, would speak Greek. They'd understand what that word meant, beloved. They'd understand that he is in absolute control. So, so in the midst of their suffering and their trials and their tribulations, they can draw great comfort knowing that God is in absolute control. That the Savior is seated on the right hand of God in full, absolute control. It also means this, to obey, to be subject. A Greek military term meaning to arrange troop divisions in a military fashion under the command of a leader. He is the commander-in-chief. <laughs> he is in charge of everything. Everything 
is subject to him. Angels, authorities, and powers are subject to him who they nailed to the cross. Powers and authorities are subject to him whom they wagged their heads and cursed upon, cursed at while he hung upon the cross. Wonder of wonders, beloved. Wonder of wonders. So Peter is bringing forth before the suffering saints that he's writing to the fact of the great substitute suffering, and then when we think upon his sufferings, it makes ours look small, doesn't it? When we think of what he endured for us at Calvary's cross, it makes our sufferings look small. I remember someone telling me years ago, they said, if you think you have it bad, just go find someone else who's got it worse than you. It's true. And the man who told me that, he had... um, Oh, cerebral palsy or some debilitating uh, disease. And he's the one who told me that. He said, you just go find someone who's worse off than you are. And you make you realize how blessed you are by the Lord. And this man was a believer. It's wonderful. Wonderful. What a great way to look at things. Things look big in our eyes. The suffering that we go through looks big in our eyes. But when we look to what the Savior suffered for us, Oh, my. And he suffered unto death for us. And notice he comes back to this in chapter 4, in verse 1. A lot of commentators believe that the chapter break here would have been better after, after verse 11 because the thought that Peter has been writing about is continued here in this chapter. And, and we know that the chapters aren't inspired, right? We know that. We know the chapter breaks aren't. They're, they're put there by the translators. It's... it's the, the Greek text is where we look at, it's the, it's the holy inspired word of God. And, but here, in this chapter, a lot of commentators believe the break would have been better in verse 11. So Peter is bringing forth the, that believers should patiently bear all their sufferings and afflictions uh, since Christ has the government in his hands, since he's in control of all things. So, and that's what Peter's contrasting. He's bringing forth the fact that, yeah, you're going through things, but God's in full control. God's in full control. He's watching over you. He's watching. He's keeping you. He's keeping you. And it's wonderful for the believer to see this. All things are subject to him. He rules over all things according to his will and purpose. He does what he pleases when he pleases. And he alone, think of this too. Think of this. They're being persecuted for their faith, right? They're being, they're being railed upon. They're, some of them are being disowned by their family members, probably, if they came out of Judaism. And he's bringing forth the absolute dominion of our great God and Savior before them. Bringing before them that he alone can stop the rage and persecutions that they're going through. He alone. He alone. So the apostles bring it forth again. And he brings forth before those whom he is writing to the suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 1. For as much then as Christ hath suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourself like eyes with the same mind. For he that hath suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin. So Peter brings forth again the fact of, of Christ's suffering. The eternal Son of God, the Lord of glory, the Holy One, the Just One, suffered in the room and place of sinners, facing the reproaches 
and persecutions of man, facing the wrath of God for our sins. The just one, the holy one, facing the wrath of God and the curse of the law for our, for our sins. The just one dying for the unjust. And death itself, all in the place of his people, all to pay what God demanded for us, his sheep, the elect of God, those described in the beginning of the epistle as elect according to the foreknowledge of God. It is for those he suffered. It is for those he died. The sinless one dying for sinners. The just one dying for the unjust. And note the words suffered for us in the flesh and tie this in with verse 18 of chapter 3 which proclaims Christ suffered for sins. So we see in verse 18 of chapter 3 the fact that our Lord was put to death with respect to the flesh and here the fact that he suffered in our place and that his sufferings were vicarious. The fact that he was a real man. He really suffered. The innocent one. The just one died on behalf of the guilty. And our sufferings are not vicarious. They're merely a consequence upon our own profession of Christ and the response of the world in hating us. But Christ died, the sinless one, for sinners. And note that after Peter brings forth the suffering of Christ before the saints, he's writing... And he exhorts believers to arm yourselves, likewise with the same mind. Peter exhorts the saints to arm themselves with the same mind that Christ had regarding unjust punishment. What was our Lord's attitude toward unjust suffering? Look at verse 17 of chapter 3. For it is better if the will of God be so, that she suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. We know from our previous studies that well-doing there is believing in Christ, professing Him in His gospel, giving a free and open reason for doing so, and exercising a good conscience and, and, and trying to live a godly life before our King. And this is something that the world the world hates and believers are persecuted unjustly for this now note the it says arm yourselves here the Greek word here was used of a soldier putting on his armor and taking his weapons Weist a Greek scholar brings forth that the noun of the same root was used of a heavily armed foot soldier who carried a pike and a large shield. So imagine a soldier of ancient times just fully armed with a pike and a large shield and just ready for battle. Just ready. The Holy Spirit of God, as Peter used the Greek word here, which brings forth that the Christian needs the heaviest armor he can get to withstand the attacks of the enemy of his soul. Turn, if you would, to Ephesians chapter 6. In the attacks of the world and the flesh. Now we are fully armed as Christian soldiers, beloved, but we're armed in Christ Jesus. We're armed in Christ Jesus, our Lord. 
Because who does the whole armor of God point to? And you know the believer is already equipped with this armor. We're already equipped with it. It's wonderful. Fully armed as Christian soldiers. And let us never forget that we have a spiritual conflict in this world. Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that ye should be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and heaven done all to stand. See, we're just commanded to stand, beloved. Just stand. Stand. Don't run back. Don't run ahead. Just stand. Just stand. Stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, and heaven on the breastplate of righteousness. Who's our righteousness? The Lord, our righteousness. Who's the truth? Christ is the truth. And your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Who's the gospel all about? Christ. And Christ alone. Above all, taking the shield of faith. Who is the object of our faith? Christ. And Christ alone. That she should be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. Take the helmet of salvation. Who's... Who's our salvation, beloved? Christ is our salvation. And the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Who does this, who does this book proclaim? Christ. In Christ alone, beloved. Praying always with prayer and supplication in the Spirit, whereunto, watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. And for me, that utterance may be given unto me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in bonds, that therein I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Oh my. Let's go back to 1 Peter chapter 4. And where note the latter part of the verse, it says, For he that hath suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin. Now, I'm going to read what Brother Henry wrote about this because I thought he, he worded it really well. He said two implications are given here. Christ, the sinless sacrifice, who bore our sins in his body and suffered for them and died for them, is now clear of those sins. The sins imputed to, for, to, to him for which he made satisfaction are gone. In Christ, we are justified and freed from the charge of sin, the condemnation of sin, and the curse of the sin. We stand in God's sight as if we'd never sinned. That's just spectacular. That's just amazing. And then number two, he said, the person who is crucified with Christ, which is the believer, buried with Christ and risen with Christ, has ceased to be the servant of sin, self, and the world. He has not ceased from the burden of it, because we still have it, don't we? We still struggle with it. Uh, nor continue war with it, and boy, we can attest to that. But he has ceased from the servitude and dominion of sin. 
through divine grace and is a bond slave of Christ. This is just precious truth, beloved. Absolutely precious truth that we have set here before us by Peter. And it's all under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God. And, and, and truly, God's preachers have wonderful news, don't we? Wonderful news. Our, our, our ministry, as Brother Gary and I were talking with Norm, and Gary brought out how, how our ministry is the ministry of reconciliation. We have, we have wonderful news that sinners are, can be reconciled or are reconciled uh, through Christ with God. It's, it's absolutely wonderful news. Now let's look at verse 2. It says that he, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the loss of man, but to the will of God. So Peter is bringing forth here that we who are the sons of God, we, are to, we who are saved by grace, we're still in this world, and we have time left to spend here until God calls us home. But that the believer should no longer live the rest of his earthly life in the sphere of the cravings of, uh, or lusts of men. And we're to live our life in submission to the will of God, being ruled by the will of God, desiring to live righteously. And we desire that, don't we? We desire that. We desire to live soberly and godly in this world. We're, and, and how are we motivated? How are we motivated in our service? By the love of Christ. By the love of Christ. It what guides us and motivates us and constrains us, isn't it? It's the love of Christ. Now the word lust here in the Greek speaks of any strong craving here, an evil craving. And note that the apostle here explains what he means by being dead to sin and, and ceasing from sin, both negatively and positively. Negatively, a Christian ought to no longer live the rest of his time in the flesh uh, to the sinful lusts and corrupt desires of carnal wicked men, but positively, he ought to conform himself to the revealed will of God in our lives. Let's read verses 3 and 4 together now. For the time past of our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lasciviousness, lusts, excess of wine, revealings, banquetings, and abominable iniquities, wherein they, they think it strange that ye run not with them to the same excess of riot, Speaking evil of you. Again, Peter's writing to God's born again, blood bought people. They're not the same people they were. They're born again. They have new desires. And Peter brings forth that before we had Christ revealed to us, before we were born again by the Spirit, we lived like heathens. We did. I can attest to that. I know Brother Donnie and I have had many talks about that, how we were before. We, we lived riotous lives. And Paul brings forth the same thing. Turn, if you would, to Ephesians chapter 2. Paul brings forth the same thing, the same truth that Peter is bringing forth here, that, that before we were saved, we lived as heathens and pagans. And... and Paul brings forth the same truth before the Ephesian believers. And God's people, we, we amen that, don't we? Because we know what we were. We know what God saved us out of. We know how we thought. Oh my, we were dead in trespasses and sins. Look at Ephesians chapter 2. And so with that in mind, look at what, what Paul's writing here. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. 
And you hath he quickened, that you're born again, who were dead in trespasses and sins. And we know what that means. That means we had no ability to come to God. Where in times past, now he's going to tell us what we were like. Where in times past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversations in times past, in the lusts of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. You couldn't tell one of God's, God's elect who is not regenerated from the lost. You couldn't tell. That's why we preach the gospel to everyone. And God does the saving, doesn't he? He does the regenerating. Among whom also we all had our conversations in times past, and the lust of our flesh, again, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. Underline this if you could. But God. There's a mountaintop. But God. In every believer's life, there's a time. But God. When you heard the gospel, and when the Holy Spirit made it effectual, and when you're born again, but God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love, wherewith he loved us. How long has he loved us? In eternity. This love is an eternal love. For his great love, and what great love that is, the love of God for his people, wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, so even before we were saved, hath quickened us together with Christ, by grace ye are saved. God's love for his people, for his elect, is an eternal great But see, Paul brings forth our natural state, doesn't he? And the same thing Peter's doing over, over in First uh, Peter. So think upon this, the things that we now hate, we once loved. And the things that we once hated, now we love. It's flipped all back around, isn't it? The things were, that are now shame to us, we once delighted in. And we have no cause to judge or condemn those who exploit the flesh, for we ourselves were in that same darkness. So we ought not to ever look at someone and think, oh, I'm better than them. No. The only thing that's made us to differ from anyone in the world is the grace of God in Christ. That's it. That's the only thing. Who made you to differ? God. God's made me. When I was out west, some guy, Norm works in a gun shop part-time, and a guy came in, and he didn't know who Norm and I was, of course, and we just got talking with him. We were just jazzing away with the guy, and he says, I'd like to ask you guys a question. And he said, if you could stand before God and, and, and uh, ask him any question, what would it be? And I just I was quiet because I'm gonna let Norm answer this because he's he's the elder here and I'm gonna I'm gonna just sit and listen. And I already knew what I was gonna say. Well he popped off the same thing I said. Why me? Why me? My 
So we have no cause to judge and condemn those because we were in the same, we're, we're cut out of the same, same rock, beloved. We were in the same darkness. And it's only God who's made us to differ. But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ by grace you are saved. Let's go back to verse 4. It says, Wherein they think it strange that ye run not with them to the same excess of riot, speaking evil of you. Note the words here that ye run not with. Weist brings out in the Greek that that means to run in company with. And he continues to comment, it means here to run in a troop with others, like a band of, 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 of revelers. And the word excess is the translation of a Greek word meaning literally a pouring forth or an overflowing. And it was used in classical Greek of the tides which fill the hollows. So the world thinks it's strange that believers do not enjoy and take part in the, the in their evil, in their sinfulness, in their excess. And they do not understand why we, we hate that which we once loved. They don't understand it. And we've all experienced that, haven't we? When we get together with our families and things, people, different people maybe we grew up with, we've experienced that. They think, what happened? Why don't you love to do the things that we once did? They think it's strange that believers do not enjoy to partake in the sinfulness. They wonder how we do not find sin a pleasure and a delight. And some of them remember again how we were before the Lord saved us. And they wonder how we can enjoy the Lord and the wonders of his salvation. It's because we're new creatures in Christ. We still have the same body, don't we? But we're born again. <laughs> we're new creatures. We don't desire the things we once desired. We battle sin every day now. We struggle. We hate the things we once loved. And well, we who are saved sinners, we have had Christ revealed to us. We're born again. We're his blood-washed people. And, and we spend our time here on earth, marveling in the fact. I ask you this, do you not marvel? Do you not marvel in the fact that the Lord saved you? Sometimes I just sit and marvel. Me? We marvel in the fact that the Lord saved us from all our sins. We, we marvel in the fact that we're clothed in his perfect righteousness. Because we know we don't deserve this, do we? It just leaves us in awe. They call us fools and fanatics and the do-gooders, even though they don't know we're, we're not do-gooders at all, are we? <laughs> I remember John, that one guy came in and said, a bunch of good people here, and John said, I don't know who you're talking about. <laughs> Because we know what we are. Oh my. We know what we are. But we understand them, don't we? Because we were once like them. 
But we've been washed in the blood of the Lamb, beloved. And again, we know it's only the grace of God in Christ that's made us to differ. Let's look at verse 5 to close. We're closed with verse 5. Who shall give an account to him that is ready to judge the quick and dead? Now those who speak evil of God's people and of Christ, the Christ whom we worship, will one day give an account of themselves to Christ who is God himself. It is he who, when he comes, is ready to judge the living and the dead. And those who are in Christ, for those who are in Christ, here's wonderful news. And I mean this is wonderful news. There's no judgment. I was talking to a young man out west and he had remembered a conversation that I had had with him two years before when we just left. And he kept thinking that he was going to be bought before and given account for, for, um, for um, his sins. And I said, I said, look, just look to Christ. If you look to Christ, you'll never be bought into judgment. If you look to yourself and your own sin and your own... And, 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 and your, your supposed well-doing, you're perishing your sins. But for those who are in Christ Jesus, there is therefore now no condemnation. Remember that in Romans chapter 8, verse 1? That word condemnation in the Greek means judgment. That is wonderful news for God's people. Absolutely wonderful news. But for those who die in their sins, they shall be judged justly and fairly according to their works. And note, who shall give account to him that is ready to judge the quick and the dead, they're going to give an account to God himself. The ungodly will give an account of all their blasphemies spoken by them against God, against Christ, against the gospel, and against his people. And they shall receive their just punishment. And Peter brings this forth to calm the minds of God's people. To calm the minds of God's people and make them sit easy under all the seasons of life, whether it is times of persecution or times of reproach. And he brings forth that they are not to think of avenging themselves, not at all, but they commit themselves to him that will judge righteously. And his name is the Lord Jesus Christ their Savior, and their Redeemer. Now don't forget, we as believers, this wonderful, precious truth, all our sins have been judged. All our sins have been paid for by the great substitute, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we get what we don't deserve. Mercy. Oh, what wonderful news the gospel preacher has. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for this time together. Pray that You'd be glorified and magnified, Lord Jesus. Pray that You'd be with us in the morning service to come and the evening service, Lord Jesus. Oh, we pray that Thy gospel would go forth. 
We know that thy word will not return unto thee void. And so we pray that if it's your will, that you might draw one of your lost sheep to thee, either through the preaching or through someone hearing it later on. We just seek to glorify you and magnify you in all things. And we love you, Lord, because you first loved us. In Jesus' name, amen.